there. Welcome. And thanks for listening along with Kingstown Communion, an inclusive and affirming United Methodist Church in the Kingstown area of Alexandria, Virginia. And our community exists to gather people, just like you here now, into communion with Christ and extend God's table into the world through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. This podcast is just one way that we live this out. For more information about our church or to give to our ministry, visit kingstowncommunion.net. And if you live nearby, we hope you'll join us for worship on Sundays at Hayfield Secondary School. Scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will face stricter judgment. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is mature, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of life, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, bless the Lord, and Father, with it will curse people. Made in the likeness of God, from the same mouth comes a blessing and a curse. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Noah. Uh, So I'll never forget the moment that I sat down with my friends, my group of friends, that uh, the people that I, you know, this was pre-Olive, people I went out with in the evenings and, um, and hung out with regularly. They were all teachers at that point in time, majority of them. Um, I'll never forget their reaction when I decided to finally tell them that I was switching things up and I was going to become a pastor. Um, I did not prep them for this in any way. Um, and I don't actually remember the reactions of m- the majority of the people at the table, but I remember one reaction. Um, we were at Plaza Azteca and eating our, you know, tableside guacamole, and um, and I remember the one. <laughs> I nervously said, um, "Hey, so I have some news to share. Um, I've decided to apply to seminary. Uh, I know I know that teaching isn't what I was meant to do. I've I've known that for some time, and I've decided to become a pastor." 
And one of my closest friends, without missing a beat, said, why the hell would you want to do that? <laughs> and she was super serious. It was not sarcastic. It was not, um, it was not tongue in cheek. I mean, it was serious. Why the, why the hell would you want to do that? Um, and that's the thing about words, right? I don't remember anyone else's reaction at the table. <laughs> um, but that one phrase, it hung with me for over a decade. Um, and it, because it was this vulnerable moment, I didn't know what they were going to think. I mean, um, I hadn't always been all that holy with them, right? They were, they were the, the people in my life that saw me be me, just were never not when I was pastor, and what would they think of that? What would they think of me? What would they, it's a vulnerable space, um, and it stung, and it hung in the air. Um, it has for like a decade. Uh, what is striking about my friend and what she said um, after all of this time, too, is that I'm actually still doing business with those words. Like, I, I feel their sting over and over and over and over again. Those days when I um, and ask my own self or ask God, why the heck did I do this? <laughs> right? Um, I uh, also, for a good amount of time, even though I left the, the Pentecostal church um, at 18, I, I stayed in contact with my youth pastor uh, growing up, and I, we would go stay with their family. I introduced them to Chris. Um, wasn't kind of, my faith was changing, but they were still beloved to me. Um, and it was at, towards the end of my first year of seminary that we went to stay with him and his family, and I'll remember what he said, um, so excited so excited to, to kind of do that work, that theological conversation work with him now that I've had a little bit of time in seminary and read some things and um, said, how's Duke? Do you still even love Jesus? And I remember how that made me feel. So much so that I'm still doing business with those words. Um, still daily checking myself <laughs> to see um, has this faith become, started to become so heady or, um, or all about what we do with our hands that I've forgotten um, or I've neglected how my heart feels about Jesus. And so um, I, that's the thing about words. They just they have the, a way of wounding still. <laughs> and even if those words, the person who said them, isn't, isn't the part that's wounding anymore, they still have a way of coming back in and creeping back up and um, becoming this like accuser <laughs> in your brain, remembering what somebody had said um, that stung so long ago. Um, words, though, they, they, they appear so insubstantial. You can't weigh words. Like, you can't, they're not, you can't hold them in your hand. Like, they have no substance. They have no solid form. Um, but I, I like what, what T.S. Eliot said um, about them. Words 
T.S. Eliot said, words strain, they crack, and they sometimes break under the burden, under the tension. They slip and slide and perish and decay with imprecision, with imprecision. Will not stay in place, and they never stay still. We, we talk with words. <laughs> we talk without words, and it's difficult to talk without words, but we also talk without words, too, and yet we rarely talk about words, and that's what James is doing this morning. James is talking about words. We don't really talk about words as much because they're normally symbols. Their importance lies not in the word itself. Um, like, like symbols, words are, are merely a way of talking about one thing in terms of something else. Um, and I'll give you an idea of what I mean in a second. Um, someone, maybe this will help. Someone once said that, that the mind is like an art gallery with pictures hanging on the wall. And underneath each picture is a little plaque on which is inscribed the name of the picture appearing above it. I mean, that's the way words work for us. When I say a word, what you see is a picture in your brain. You don't see the word underneath when I say the word, right? If I say the word book, what you see is a volume. I wonder how big that book is in your brain. Is it a board book? Because you've been reading those a lot lately. Is it a, is it a thin, is it a thin book you remember from your childhood? Is it a novel this thick? I wonder what comes to mind. Um, I say a word and you get a picture. And so try this for a second. I'm going to say a few words and I just what come. I just just. Feast on this, I wonder what comes to mind. You don't have to share with me, but I just take a second and picture it. Doctor. I wonder what came to mind. Senator. Southerner. None. I say a word and the picture appears, like hanging on the wall of your mind. The problem is that the human mind being an individual thing, we don't all have the same pictures, right? Hanging on the walls of our minds. I say the word doctor, and some of you work in the profession, and so it's, it's, you're thinking of, you're seeing of countless people in your brain. Maybe one that was a, a bit of a jerk, or one that um, has your deep respect. Um, I say the word doctor, and you think of the person hanging over your loved one when they died. I say the word doctor, Perhaps you see a man, and you, just because they're typically pictured as men, right? Um, each one different. 
We speak a word with confidence that it will slide so easily off our tongue and into the ear of a listener. And I imagine that immediately the picture hanging on their wall of their mind is the same picture hanging on the wall of my mind, right? But anyone who's had to say ever, like, no, that is not what I meant at all, knows that it is not that easy, right? At any point, the semantic freight carried by our words can be completely derailed. And so words, they seem fickle and they twist and they turn at the slightest aggravation, at the slightest um, wounding memory. And perhaps that's one of the reasons speech has become so discredited and devalued in our culture. The quickest way to depreciate something now is to banish it to the world of words. So we say things like, that's just hearsay, or um, talk is cheap, or sticks and stones will break my bones, but words. And, and more than one poet has lamented the fact that words often seem so puny and anemic and insubstantial to be trusted with something so great as an idea or an image or a feeling they're trying to express. But that word about words is not the last word. Words also are this form of power. And like all forms of power, and James is talking about this today, They can be used to bless and they can be used to curse. They can be used to heal and they can be used to injure. They can bring life, they can bring death, they can build up or they can tear down. Consider these words for a second. Just what comes to mind. Consider the weight of these words, the complexity of them. White. AIDS, father, I'm fine. I love you. I want a divorce. Each one a little different, but can you feel that? <laughs> like, um, consider the woman behind the counter at the welfare office who's peering through the glass at the, the disheveled figure before her. And she says, I'm sir, like I have, I have to have your address to process your claim. I'm sorry. Uh, I have to have your address, sir. I have to have an address to process the claim. Where do you live? I don't have an address. Like, where do you live then? Well, I did live in the park. 
and you feel how inadequate words are in a conversation like that. When I did my um, chaplaincy internship, I was once called late one night to the emergency room. Um, they had asked if, if you, they could call me, the nurses in the emergency room had asked if they could call me if there was a pastoral care when there wasn't a pastor there. And so I said, sure. And so one of the nurses met me at the door on the way to the waiting room and told me the story of this young couple who had just brought their infant son to the ER and they were, they were, there were huddled whispers like all around the ER. Um, and in the whispers, something like SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And now the ER physician wanted me to accompany her to the waiting room where these, this family was. And when I walked in, they, they're, they're there, like folded together, <laughs> like these frightened children and they stood when they saw us, and, and, they, and then clearing her throat, the doctor said those seven little words that are so inadequate. I'm sorry we did everything we could. Or what about the politician um, who looks deeply in the screen into the camera lens and says, I had nothing to do with that woman. And we listen and we, and we want desperately to believe that, but later we, we learn that they're just words. Or when someone says, I give you my word, despite all the devaluation of, of that linguistic currency in our culture, that's still a heavy expression to say, I give you my word. And you feel that and then you think how many times that's not true. I can still, um, I can still recall my disbelief <coughs> when I first heard the story of Jacob and Esau uh, in the Old Testament. It's one of those Sunday school stories and um, the story of blind old Isaac's blessing the wrong son. Jacob, the second born, conniving opportunist of a son, tricked his older brother and duped his blind old father into speaking the paternal blessing on the wrong kid. And my response was this like <laughs> swift, childish response, like perfectly logical for an eight-year-old. Well, why didn't he just take it back? Right? You just got to take it back. Take back what you said. Like when I was young, that's what, I, like you could just do a do-over, right? You just called, you could just declare, do-over. And everything was made okay. Like, why didn't he just call a do-over? Why? Why didn't Isaac just declare a do-over and bless the, the right kid this time? And you imagine when my, my surprise when the teacher told me that the Hebrew people, for them, words had this power in them, which once spoken, once let loose into the world, could not be called back or retrieved. 
like arrows flung in flight from a bow, they could never, ever be taken back. You can't reverse that. On a recent long drive, I, um, I listened to a novel, uh, Saint Maybe, it's by Ann Taylor, and she tells the story um, of this character, Ian, a young man who's eaten up with guilt because he wrongly suspected his sister-in-law of having an affair and, and of being unfaithful to his brother, but she hadn't. But he told his brother anyway. And his brother, believing Ian, became so despondent at the news that he eventually takes his life. It's a horrible story. Uh, And Ian is haunted by the guilt of what he'd done that cannot be undone. And he can't sleep and he can't eat. And he says, oh God, how long will I have to pay for a handful of tossed off words? Can we just back up? Can we just start over? Couldn't I just have one more chance? They have this form of power, words do. Uh, Like all forms of power, they can bless or they can curse and they can heal and they can harm. They can save, they can damn, and they can build up and they can tear down too. And it's for that reason that James warns us today. Let not many of you become teachers. We've got a lot of teachers in our congregation, some of whom are becoming teachers for the first time this year, even. And James says... Let not, this is really intriguing, two weeks before school starts. (laughs) Let not many of you become teachers, my siblings. Know that we shall receive greater judgment. And then he goes on and says, for we all fail much, but if anyone does not fail in any matter, this one is a perfect person about to bridle even the whole body. But if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we thus guide their whole bodies. Notice also the ships, though they are impressive and driven by stout winds. They are guided by a little rudder wherever the will of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a little member, but boasts great things. Behold, a small fire engulfs a great forest, and the tongue is a fire. James's Jewish Christian background is probably behind his warning here about the high stakes of teaching. In Judaism, there was no more sacred relationship than that of rabbi and disciple. This was due in part to like the Torah-centric character of Judaism. But it was also due to the fact that the rabbi, as an an authoritative teacher of the Torah represented God to the people. It was a position which which held much respect in the ancient world, and James cautions those who would aspire to this position to remember that it also carries with it this incredible responsibility. And since words are the teacher's trade and the tongue is the teacher's tool, right? James reminds the teacher to choose words with great care because words exercise a a power disproportionate to their size and to their substance. 
And to do this, James employs metaphor after metaphor, analogy after analogy to drive home this point. Even a small bit can control a great horse, a tiny rudder, a small ship. So also the tongue, though small, can ignite passions more incendiary than a raging forest fire, he says. And the tongue is a fire. It's this apt metaphor. The tongue is a fire because it conjures up raging inferno, burning out of control. Anyone who has ever left a conversation or a meeting thinking to themselves, I cannot believe I just said that. Like, what came over me? Anyone who's ever said that will understand what a consuming fire the tongue can be. I still wonder if my friend ever wondered that to herself after she'd gone home post-guacamole. Words wound and they, and they tear down, but words also bless and they build up. Um, one of my favorite stories in the Bible about this is Nehemiah. Nehemiah, um, he speaks in, in Nehemiah 8, uh, like, it's these blessing words spoken um, following the fall of Jerusalem. And in 586, the faith of Israel entered into this dark ages period, and much of the population was deported from Babylon at this point. And there, far from the temple and the holy city, the people of God had to learn to practice their faith without the benefit of the temple and without the priest and without the sacrifice. It, it would be 70 years before Jerubabel would, would build another temple and then only a poor, pathetic parody of what was Solomon's splendid temple. But on, on a crisp fall morning, this priest, Ezra, leads this ragtag group of returnees to what is called the Watergate in Jerusalem to try to rekindle the faith that had been nearly extinguished in the suffocating slavery of Babylon. And he climbs um, into this makeshift pulpit, unrolls this big scroll, and like takes a big breath, and then he just lets the words go. But when he reads those words, a power not his own takes wing among the people. The story goes that he, that he reads from sunup to midday and not a soul nods off. That hardly ever happens when people preach, right? <laughs> I'm not talking about anybody here, I promise. Like, and so when he opens the scroll, the people, they stood out of respect for the power of the words, and when he finished, they cried, amen, amen, I never get those here. Um, what a powerful time at the Watergate when, when a teacher stood up and, and reads the words of history and the hope and the heritage, and through them, call the people back home. And when they hear these words, good words, strong words, blessing words, the people of God are then reborn Words are these powerful things. Let not many of you desire to be teachers. A pastor? Why the hell would you want to do that? Do you even love Jesus anymore? The tongue is this fire 
let not many of you teach. But please let some of you teach, please. Her name was Miss Maydish. Um, she was my high school Spanish teacher, uh, but she also taught English. Um, and I then later became an English major, not because of any English teacher I had, but because of the Spanish teacher I had. Um, and then she later became a counselor, um, someone I went back to, to visit over and over and over again. She was the one who actually introduced me to C.S. Lewis, um, to uh, G.K. Chesterton, to, um, oh, to so many of, of philosophers and theologians even before I even was introduced to any of them. Um, and as an English major who was preparing for ministry, um, she had something to say to me when I visited not long after having had that guacamole meal um, with a friend. I'll never forget the conversation I had with her when I visited. I was nervous to see her because I'm saying that I'm going to give up this thing that she holds dear for something else. And, um, and doing battle also in my brain between what I was feeling in my heart and what I knew in my head. And, um, and she said, you know, Michelle, there's more than one way to love God. We're commanded to love God not just with our hearts, but with our minds too. Like, you don't have to give that up. <laughs> what we do in a classroom is no less than a, than a sanctuary. It's, it's an expression of our faith in God, but when Jesus was asked one day to sum it all up, he quoted Israel's creed, she said, the Shema, and, and said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and the mind. If you look it up, the Shema doesn't say that we're to love God with our minds. That's not in there, but Jesus added that, she said. Jesus must have thought that was important. And then she added, um, don't misunderstand me. I'm not against heartfelt religion. There's nothing wrong with, with strong emotion and faith. There's nothing wrong with that, but Michelle, head and heart needn't be enemies of each other. And then she said, I mean, I'm a Christian for two reasons, I think, because it feels right and because it makes sense. I wouldn't be a Christian if it just felt right and didn't make any sense to me. Nor would I be a Christian if it made loads of sense but didn't feel right. I'm a Christian because it feels right and it makes sense. Michelle, if you're going to go be what God truly wants you to be, you must let your head and your heart become friends, and therefore you'll never forsake the classroom, right? You'll never stop being a teacher. And those, those few words spoken by this teacher um, they, they changed my life, the way I saw uh, this faith and the work to do, and, and I left the office that day determined that as God is my witness, I would never disappoint that woman ever. <laughs> um, she was my teacher. She's a teacher, and words were her tools. And she wasn't trying to be a hero, um, and she still less a saint, 
She was just doing her job, being faithful to the place where God had, had put her, speaking the truth and love to me, and giving grace a chance to do its work. And her words blessed me when the words of those I expected to bless me left me still with a sting. Now that I think about it, um, I bet she doesn't even remember having ever said that to me. But I do, right? Would you pray with me? God, we're thankful for speech that uh, you could have created in so many ways, countless Mesopotamian and Near East traditions tell of gods who create the world and, and create um, humans through all kinds of other ways, but you spoke us into being so that we might become also speech creatures. People that, that can build up. Build up others build up the faith, build up the church so that our words might be a fire, not that burns things to a pulp, but that sets hearts ablaze with a passion for the work of God, for the ways of God, for the love of God. God, I pray for any person here in this room who is continuing to do business with, do battle with words that have been spoken to them. Even if long after, even if they have said and they've told themselves in their mind that they're over that, um, but that some little bit of untruth has seeped into the way they see themselves and the way they see you. And the church has been good for speaking words that we really wish we could have a do-over. Um. Thank God you sent Jesus who makes all of our desires for do-overs um, pointless. Speak tenderly, God, your words of love and peace and joy and hope and, and patience and long-suffering and friendship and self-control all your words, speak them into your people today, into these people here, into the, peop into the lives of the people who have hurt them, who have said words that have stung and hung around, but also into the words that they will then speak, knowing just how, how much of a blessing they can be and also how much of a curse if used wrongly. We pray 
God, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, words that are to be life for us. We pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.